Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So, you know, I don't normally suffer from FOMO, but every once in a while I hear about a historic party I wasn't invited to. I'm pretty sure you already told me about this. Is this the uh, this is the Gilda Radner party, right? No, I mean, I do talk about that party a lot. And in fact, now that you've mentioned it, I am going to talk about it. There's this uh, <laughs> California party from uh, the oral history of Saturday Night Live, and they discuss it. And it's basically every funny person in the world attended it. It was pretty crazy to read about some of those original SNL cast members and some of the people that are just now such superstars. But you've got Steve Martin there and... Monty Python, the SCTV folks, like so many others that were all in this one place, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and during the night, somewhere along the way, they realized that Gilda Radner is really sick, and this is probably the last time anyone's going to see her. And when she tries to make her exit and say her goodbyes, Bill Murray just picks her up and uses her as this, like, improv prop and makes her laugh really, really hard. And then he <laughs> passes her off to someone else, and they do that. And the entire night's just spent where people are just passing Gilda Radner around and using her as an improv prop and uh, making her laugh. And, and it just sounds like the best party in the world. But, yeah, it uh, does. That wasn't the party I was talking about. So this is way artsier, and it feels way more doable for us to get to. But in Berlin, this artist threw a same-height party. And the whole idea was that he got everyone's height beforehand, and then he constructed all these slip-on platform shoes that were at the entrance. And before you could come in, you had to put on these giant blue foam shoes. And once you did, everyone who walked in the room was exactly the same height, six foot six. Whoa, six foot six. So what, what's the point of this? So really, it was just an experiment to see how your behavior changes. Like, you know how on TV talk shows, the host often has his chair jacked up super high, and that changes the dynamic? But the idea was, what if everyone is exactly eye to eye? What does it mean when we're all one height? And I kind of love the idea of how if you play with the settings or, you know, you play with how you invite people or even how you provoke controversy at a party, you can actually make for more meaningful and more memorable interactions. And that's exactly what our guest Priya Parker, author of the new book, The Art of Gathering, is here to talk about. Let's dive in.
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangash Hot Ticketer. And sitting behind that soundproof glass, assembling a mixtape for his next house party. I hear these are pretty <laughs> raging events. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Yeah, I took a peek at the tracks Tristan's pulling together. It's got everything from, like, Beethoven B-sides to Mahavishnu Orchestra to Spice Girls remixes. It's pretty um, eclectic. I got to be honest, I I wouldn't (laughs) expect anything less from Tristan. But, you know, today's show is more than just setting the mood with a soundtrack. We've got Priya Parker, author of the new book, The Art of Gathering, on the show. Now, if you've ever wondered what's the right size for a party, or how do you gently tell someone they're not invited to a gathering, or something even bigger like, how do you bring NFL players and owners together in a way that makes them both feel at ease, and then has them leaving an experience feeling bonded? Priya has this amazing amount of experience and insight. So Priya Parker, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thank you for having me. Now, we're fascinated by your background, you know, from the worlds you were bridging as a child to the events you organize and consult on now. And I was curious, before we get into all the conversation around gatherings, I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about your background in conflict resolution and then, of course, how you grew that background into starting Thrive Labs. So I... I was born in Zimbabwe, perhaps uncommon place to be born. And I come from two different worlds. My mother is Indian, grew up in um, in India, born and raised, and then immigrated to the U.S. for graduate school and met my white American father in Iowa, where he's from. And for about 13 years, they, um, they were married. They traveled the world together. My mother's a cultural anthropologist and my father's a hydrologist. And so I was born in Zimbabwe. (laughs) And um, fast forward nine years from my birth, and they separated. Um, We were living in Virginia at the time, and uh, both within a few years remarried. And I um, ended up, I'm an only child, I ended up basically traveling back and forth every two weeks between these two radically different households. Um, my, My mother is Indian uh, remarried an English man. And that household was really a kind of very liberal, staunch Democrat, uh, vegetarian, kind of Buddhist, Hindu, atheist uh, household, <laughs> um, and kind of all the accoutrements, new agey, as my husband likes to say. And my um, my father remarried, and he remarried a, a white American, Caucasian American woman, and they are uh, evangelical Christians. And basically, I was part of both of these households. And my, um, you know, I, I think it deeply, deeply informs my work. And I basically realized that these two families gather differently. They use different, you know, code words. They use different language. Um, and they have fundamentally radically different views of the world. And yet I, as a biracial, you know, half Indian, half white American um, young woman was uh, considered by both families to be fully a part of their families. And so I, um, I, I guess it's no, no surprise I ended up in the field of conflict resolution. But I, <laughs> that early um, experience really shaped me to um, try to kind of be curious about and better understand why and how people come together and why and how people come apart. That's pretty amazing. I do want to talk about how you find common ground in these conflicts and how you make gatherings interesting by by having the spice of personalities there. But before all that, I, I just want to talk about gatherings. And, and I, I know you say it's important to know why you're gathering, even when it's something familiar like birthday parties or bridal showers. And would you talk a little bit about that? Sure. 
So, um, you know, I, I wrote this book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. And one of the things that I found over and over again, whether I was doing research and, and interviewing, you know, Japanese tea ceremony masters or, um, you know, choreographers of circuses, basically anybody who creates group experiences for others, was the ones that kind of really took off and were transformative were the ones that were very, very, very clear on what their purpose was and what their purpose wasn't. And one of the things that I've seen, particularly in our kind of more personal private lives, is we often confuse categories of gathering for purpose. And so what I mean by that is, you know, a birthday party um, is actually not a purpose. I mean, we assume a birthday party is to celebrate a birthday, but that's what I would call a category. Um, or a wedding is to sort of get married. That's a functional category. Um, and when we assume, you know, two people get engaged, they get very excited about having a wedding, at least most people do, or they dread it, <laughs> or both. Um, but one of the problems that happens in a lot of wedding planning is once you kind of start getting into the logistics, arguments about size, about style, about form, um, and often one of the reasons that a lot of conflict can happen, whether between the couple or between the couple and, and their kind of sets of parents, um, is because they actually have different ideas of what the wedding is for and who the wedding is for. And so whenever you're gathering, the first question to ask, particularly when you think that the reason is obvious, is to say, what is this wedding for? And for some people, the wedding is to honor their parents and first and foremost, and kind of at some level have a almost rite of passage for the parents to say, okay, we've done our job and our children are out in the world and they now are starting their families. And if that's the case, then if you are debating who should be on the guest list, you may want to choose, you know, your, your mother's colleagues over your long lost college buddy. In other cases, the purpose of the wedding might be to, you know, unite a tribe from very different sides of the world or to very different walks of life. And the couple may say, you know what, we want to have our larger community know each other and um, and hold us through this through this, you know, marriage. Um, and our wedding is an opportunity for all of the people who wouldn't normally show up to come together and for us to make sure that they really meet and have meaningful time together. And then you can talk about the guest lists or the food or, you know, the table setting or even the place, because once you know what the purpose is, you no longer have all of these other proxy wars battling out. Speaking of the invite list, one of the things you talk about or, or that you say is that when everyone is invited, no one is invited. And, you know, I, I'm curious, like, why is excluding people from gatherings so important? And and on that note, if you are going to be excluding people, how do you manage the feelings of the people that you exclude or, or the bobs, as you call them? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think one of the things that paradoxically kind of mess up or at least dilute some of our gatherings is this sort of age old adage, um, the more the merrier. Um, and that saying comes from a spirit of generosity, which I, you know, strongly recommend to have uh, <laughs> in, in whenever you bring people together. <laughs> um, but whenever one of the things that that kind of happens in a, a number of different gatherings is that when we kind of invite anyone and everyone, it's hard to have people connect over something specific. So, for example, 
if you're having a birthday party and invite kind of everybody you know, or or even as a, if it's a small birthday party, but you invite people from all different parts of your life, it may be hard for people to kind of connect over. You know, they they kind of have to figure out how what they want to connect on and, and over. Whereas if you get more specific, so for example, okay, this year for my birthday, I want to really focus on reconnecting with my siblings or. I want to cut out the people in my life that are bringing out the parts of my life that I don't really want to be doing anymore. And I want to really focus on the people that are bringing out the best in me. Um, it gives you a clear sense of who you actually want to invite and who you, who you may not want to. A friend of mine was recently invited by his grandmother to, um, for her birthday. He lives in the U.S., but his grandmother is in Germany. For him and his adult siblings to go to their grandmother's birthday. And the grandmother specifically said, no partners, no children. And this was an extremely controversial <laughs> invitation. <laughs> and um, the partners felt, you know, some partners didn't care, some partners kind of felt badly. Um, some of the you know, adult grandchildren thought this was a very strange invitation. Others didn't think anything of it. But at the end of the day, they decided to go. They said, you know, it's grandma, she's getting old, she's in her 80s, like, it's kind of like a quirky, you know, quirky invitation, let's just go. And I spoke with my friend when he came back from this birthday party, which was basically time with his adult siblings and cousins. And he said it was one of the most beautiful times he'd ever spent with his siblings and cousins because they met for the first time as adults without any of the other roles that they play in their life, you know, husband or wife, father. And so they were able to connect as adults for the first time in the way that they hadn't been able to since they were 13. And this kind of slow, beautiful, open time with their grandmother was this like gorgeous, meaningful time together that they wouldn't have been able to have or would at least would have been different had they also been tending to their spouse's needs and their children's needs. And so it wasn't that they should do that necessarily every year, but it was actually the wisdom of the grandmother in exclusion and being willing to take some heat for it that allowed for some space for them to come out and kind of play as adults. I, I love that. And I, I love um, that phrase you use, purpose as a bouncer, because it just feels really liberating, especially for someone <laughs> like me who, who does tend to just want to invite everyone and and, uh, um, and uh, allow as many bobs as possible to come. But I do have one question about magic numbers, and you talk about this a little bit. I'm always someone who never knows the right amount of pizza to order for things. And I like knowing <laughs> that they're like specific numbers that are useful. Can you talk about like the certain types of gatherings and how many um, people you need to make those more effective? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm a facilitator. I'm a, I work professionally with groups to, um, you know, to, to kind of have to create transformative experiences for them. And so groups of six tend to be great for great conversation um, when all six are, you know, actively participating. So whether it's a, a dinner or whether it's a support group, but the drawbacks of six is that if somebody isn't fully engaged, you know, you can't really bear dead weight. Um, and it's also difficult if, again, depending on your purpose, to have a diversity of, of viewpoints. Eight to 12 is kind of a great number for small group experience where it's still lively and, um, and if well facilitated, everyone can talk. And above that, you know, 20, 30, that's a good size for kind of a buzzy party. People can still look around and over a few hours can meet, you know, everybody in the room or the majority of people, but it still feels kind of intimate, not overwhelming. 
and and kind of works as a you know as an energetic gathering you're probably not all sitting around the table but you're milling around and for weddings you know for my wedding between 120 and 150 and you still feel like you're being held by kind of your community um but it's not so overwhelming that you have no idea who's there we have lots more questions for priya but first let's take a quick break today i'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids how about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking to author Priya Parker. You know, I'm curious when you think about other meetings that maybe you're not organizing, I'm guessing it's pretty tough for you not to kind of post-mortem those events. You know, you think about recent gatherings that we see on TV, whether it's the White House Correspondents' Dinner or the way the NFL owners got together to talk about, you know, the, the players kneeling. Do you look at events like that and think about how they could have been executed more effectively? Absolutely. And to me, that's actually, you know, one of the things I think is most interesting. And I think um, 
you know, one thing that but friends say to me after they've read this book is that the gift and the curse is you never look at a gathering the same way again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to take the two examples you mentioned, the, with the, first, the NFL meeting, it would actually happened a while ago. It was recently leaked to the press, which is why it's in the news again. But last October, after Colin Kaepernick started this kneeling, you know, the, these kneeling moments and kind of this call to action to other NFLs to join, NFL players to join, NFL owners and a number of players to come to their headquarters in New York to have a meeting about, you know, what they called the quote kneeling issue. And um, the tapes of that meeting was recently released. So you can listen to how the meeting kind of went down. And first of all, it was, I think, awesome that they fought to gather in that way. So I would say the first thing is that in a moment where there is multiple moments, any time in a game where a uh, player can choose to kneel um, and to activate a symbol that is extremely controversial in the public eye and means different things to different people. The idea for the owners to bring together the players and to actually talk about this is a great thing. So the first thing I'd say is whoever thought about doing that is is on the right track. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing is I think once they actually decided, and I haven't spoken to anyone from there, so this is all, you know, me speaking about it from afar, you know, one thing about a gathering is to think about how you seat people, where is the gathering? They decided to do an NFL headquarters. So on one hand, there's a lot of authority there um, and gravitas. On the other hand, it is the, at some level, the owner's turf. Um, And they sat in a circle, as far as I understand, with the players and the owners sitting in every other chair to kind of show equality, which I would say is also good. Um, But when you actually listen to the tapes of the conversation, the, they're broadly talking past each other. Um, and what I would say is you zoom back out the over and over again, the players keep coming back to the idea that Kaepernick is, they believe is being blackballed from the league, kind of their language, not mine. Um, and the owners basically are still are trying to focus on damage control. And they're worrying that, that this sort of, as they call it, the kneeling issue is actually literally affecting their bottom line and is upsetting fans. And as you listen to the conversation, they're basically talking past each other. And one of and what I would say is going if I was working with the organizers of that meeting, would be to step back ahead of time and say, what is the purpose of this meeting beyond kind of showing us, you know, symbolic um, camaraderie? What do you actually want to get out of this meeting? Do you want to come to an agreement? Do you want both sides to better understand where they're coming from? Do you want to focus on Kaepernick because that might seem it seems like the players can't uh, get over the idea precondition to actually talking about whether or not they're willing to kneel? Do you want to have the focus of the agenda be kneeling? And so basically, I think one of the problems with that meeting was that it wasn't clear what its purpose was. And then the structure of how they actually allowed people to talk, basically, there, it doesn't seem like there was a structure. And so it was a bit chaotic, and they just kept on talking in circles. And so so when I look at a public gathering like that, um, one of the things that I look at is how could they, if they have this incredible moment where they're bringing together um, players and owners for probably one of the first times in the league's history, um, how do you actually structure the gathering so that it meets its intended purpose? And what is the purpose for that gathering? You know, the place you host a gathering allows for all sorts of different options in how you gather. And it's not just logistical, you know, if you have a room that fits 20 people or a room that fits 150 people. But basically, anytime you're thinking about a gathering, you should have the place and the space work for what, how you want people to show up and what you want them to be thinking about. So let's just play with this NFL meeting for a second. 
they hosted at the NFL headquarters. Imagine had they, as you said, held it in Selma. Imagine if they held it in Ferguson. Um, imagine if they held it in a stadium with fans in the seats watching as long as they agreed not to speak. And, the, and they, they mic'd up the you know, players and the owners and actually had a dialogue about what does this kneeling thing mean and had the audience and NFL fans agree to listen but not boo or cheer. You know, imagine if they had it in an owner's home over dinner. Imagine if they had it at Colin Kaepernick's mother's home. Imagine if they had it at the Trump Hotel in Washington. Each of these choices are should be very intentional choices. And by the way, will be interpreted by people in all sorts of different ways. I could see fans being very angry that a meeting like that would be held in um, Selma or in Montgomery mm-hmm. or in any places that have symbolic you know, meaning. But all of that to say is the same thing is true for you know, a birthday party or a book event or a, a, uh, a sales meeting. And one of the ways to really think boldly about the way you gather is to think about having your place really work for you. So if you are having, you know, I know a, a publisher that had a book event in a cemetery um, and already, no matter what they do in the cemetery, they've already transformed people's relationship to the book and to the author and to how they remember that event. And so one of the things to think about as you're gathering is where and how and what kind of strange venues <laughs> um, might you want to gather in. You think about um, what you were saying about the NFL thing, like if they'd picked a venue like Selma or the owners and the players had walked across a bridge together or, you know, totally. that, that, that you could have really established a very different feel for this meeting and, and how interesting that, that could have been. You know, you talk about a scene in the book where there are these um, four important leaders that are attending a dinner event uh, the night before a meeting, and there's this fifth really important world leader who wants to attend it but doesn't want to go to the dinner, just wants to go to the meeting the next day. I, I was curious, like, how do you convince self-important people or, you know, even people who are gathering uh, an event but are shy to fully participate and buy into sort of the cadence of a meeting and, and the various events? That, that are orchestrated or planned for a reason? I mean, so it's a great question. And what you're kind of talking about at some level is the larger question of legitimacy. So in the example in the book, we had a meeting on a Wednesday, let's say, and um, it was a meeting where it was important that the leaders that were coming together basically interacted in a way that they wouldn't normally otherwise and started to come with a spirit of openness. And so one of the things that I did was had a dinner the night before that was more like a dinner party or even like a, a wedding party than a, than a kind of a work meeting. You know, there's candles and um, wine and like stories and, and structure. And, um, and there was a state leader who couldn't make the dinner the night before or didn't want to or wasn't willing to kind of come. And at some level, one of the things that you are grappling with when you're designing an experience for other people um, is communicating with them, one, that is important, but two, whether or not your, your event kind of has legitimacy. Um, and, and what I mean by that is whether or not people are buying into your vision of, of what this is for and whether they need to be there or not. That any time, you know, two or more people come together, you know, decisions need to be made often over the course of any type of gathering and basically who's in charge and who needs, you know, if, if there's conflict, how do you actually deal with it? 
And so at some level, depending on the context, so in an organization, if you're doing a gathering and there's a dinner the night before, um, in part because people have signed contracts and the authority lies with the, um, you know, with the boss, you can actually require people to show up to a dinner. And by the way, that shouldn't be used lightly. So I often say when I'm working with companies and they say we can require people to attend the night before, I often say, please don't require them. I want them to come of their own volition because people behave very differently if they're required to be somewhere versus if they decide that they want to go. Um, and similarly, you know, with a wedding or with, with, with a kind of social gathering, um, I, you know, to me, if people aren't coming to whatever it is you, you planned, I always say like, pick up the phone and call them, um, you know, if this is something that's important to you and explain to them, you know, what it is and, um, and why you'd love for them to be there. Text, you know, uh, email, Instagram, everybody's online, but I rarely hear anybody's voice anymore. And, um, and actually just making a phone call, goes a long way. You know, Priya, I, I was amused by the list that you put together of the 15 ways to make conferences suck less. And, and because, you know, Mango and I have been to so many conferences over the years <laughs> and so many terrible conferences over the years. And, you know, I don't envy those that have to put them together because it does seem like a really difficult thing to put together a good conference. And so when you go to a great one, it's really that much more impressive. And I'm curious if you could share just a few of your favorite ideas for how to put together this type of productive gathering. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. And, you know, there are conferences are on the rise and more and more people, um, more and more companies are starting to have, you know, conference wings and conference arms. Media companies are starting to have live events. So this is something that we're, I, you know, I think we're going to see more and more of. So it's a really important question. I would just say kind of simply the two principles that I think make conferences fantastic um, are intimacy and heat. And um, what I mean by that, so I, one on the intimacy side, you know, there's all these studies that show that um, that people kind of connect much more when you share your vulnerability and things that you know aren't working as well. Brene Brown um, and sociologists like her have popularized these ideas about intimacy often between two people. And I would just take that principle and apply it to groups and to larger to larger gatherings. So. Um, one, a couple of, a couple of things under, uh, intimacy. The first is, um, to have people share in small groups or in large things that aren't working rather than things that are. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is, you know, rather than training everybody to kind of give their two minute stump speech and all of, you know, like how great you are, what you're doing, how what kind of clients that you serving or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing in your company to flip it around and give a sprout speech, which basically is sharing all of the things in your work that you actually are still curious about, that you don't know the answers to, that you're trying to figure out. And people are much more interested in kind of wanting to know what's not going well and how they may actually help. Um, one of the groups that does this well that I've come across with is the House of Genius, and they I write about it in the book. Um, they have gatherings all over the world where they invite 10 or 12 people to come together to constitute what they call a house um, and uh, invite two or three entrepreneurs to come in and get 45 minutes each to talk about what's not working in their business or what they need help with. And then um, those 12 people give them all sorts of advice and ideas. It's a very structured process. Um, but basically, it ends up being, you know, a really interesting evening because implicitly you're saying, I need help. And we tend to want to help each other. 
The second thing is uh, to do dinners where people share stories and experiences from their life um, that demonstrate some kind of struggle or some kind of um, you know confusion because we, at the end of the day, want to connect with each other in meaningful ways. And so I think conferences that allow both space but also structure for people to share what's actually going on in their life, to me, are much more interesting. And then the second part is heat. And what I mean by that coming as a conflict resolution facilitator is anything that kind of gets people's temperature, you know, uh, rising in the room. Um, it can be things that are controversial, but, uh, controversial that still serve the purpose. So controversial for just kind of controversy's sake, isn't particularly interesting. Um, but controversial when it kind of taps the core values of a community can be extremely invigorating. We tend to avoid the things that we think might, you know, ruffle some feathers. And actually, from a perspective of a gathering, those are the ones that actually, you know, people want to stay in the room for. So if it's a, you know, a church gathering, um, one of the people I interviewed for the book was a secretary of the um, Society of um, Friends, basically Quaker communities. And she said some of the best meetings that they'd had, um, this is the Philadelphia community, Circle of Friends, Society of Friends, was when they... Um, began to consciously have meetings around whether or not to allow gay marriage in their, to acknowledge gay marriage in their communities. And um, rather than avoiding it, they ha they actually structured meetings around it and, and debates um, in the Quaker format, which is if you're moved to speak, speak. And that, you know, people come alive when they're talking about and struggling with and listening to one another about the things that most um, define them as a community. And I'm curious, too, about the openings of conferences. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I think openings are um, extraordinarily important. And one of the things that um, conferences can do is in the first few moments, any in any type of gathering, people are walking in and wondering, you know, what's going on here? Do I want to be here? What part of myself do I show? Can I be jokey or should I be more formal? And um, we as organizers often vastly underestimate the importance of kind of setting the tone and um, and creating a, a environment where people have permission to go up to each other and and find ways to kind of go in. And so um, uh, one of the ways of a conference that I um, that I love that I spoke to for this book is um, it's called Spark Camp and it was started by five friends in the media industry. And one of the things they do early on, um, their weekend gatherings, they're 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 capped to seventy people, so that maintains an intimacy but still a buzz. The first night of the gathering, so I guess Friday night, they do introductions. You know, as many conferences do, the less than you would think. But the way they do introductions is they take the weight off the guests for having to introduce themselves and either be, you know, stuck in their humble brags or, <laughs> you know, all of the awkward ways one wants to introduce oneself. And the conference organizers give the conference what I think is such a gift, which is they spend time ahead of time researching every single one of their 70 guests who often they don't know themselves and come up with these short whimsical introductions and they gather together in a room and they actually read aloud each person's introduction without naming them. Um, and they say, when you hear yourself stand, huh. 
And so they may say, you know, this person met their husband at a beekeeping convention, and um, they are also one of the foremost minds on artificial intelligence. They um, grew up in Alaska, but actually because their parents were part of the Air Force, they lived in 12 states before the age of 16. And what happens is, you know, our eyes are kind of darting around trying to figure out who it is. But also, you're not sure if there's somebody else in the group that met their husband at a beekeeping conference. (laughs) (laughs) And so sometimes, you know, two or three people stand up and then everyone laughs and they have to kind of keep listening. And it's this brilliant exercise where it's interesting. Everybody is engaged because you don't want to miss your own introduction. But everybody's also engaged because they're, you're, they're giving you seeds of information that you can then go up to each of the other 69 people in the room over the course of the weekend and have three or four different ways into conversation with them. Mm-hmm. And so they think very uh, beautifully about how do you early on give non-awkward or at least less awkward ways for people to approach one another in meaningful ways about their work and also about things that have nothing to do with their work. More questions for Priya after a quick break. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super-comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com.
I love the idea, too, of you um, sitting out and charting out heat maps, which you talk about in the book, and to orchestrate some <laughs> of the heat. But um, I'm also curious about these two interesting events that you've pulled together. One is 15 Toasts and then these I'm Here Days. And, and I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could just talk a little bit about that. Sure. So 15 Toasts came from this experience of going to events and having kind of amazing people in the room, but feeling um, that the kind of modus operandi was showing off or, or talking about how great everything was. And specifically, I was at the World Economic Forum, one of their annual meetings uh, in Abu Dhabi. And a colleague and I, Tim Leberecht, um, who were serving on the same council, realized that in all of these meetings, even though we're supposed to be talking about new models of leadership or values-based leadership, it tends to remain very heady um, and, you know, or is an opportunity for people to kind of promote their company's latest initiative. Um, and so we, we, we decided to run an experiment where um, the night before we gathered 15 people from a number of the different councils and invited them to come together over dinner off the record, though um, we all agreed we could share what happened at the dinner, but not attribute it to a specific person. So Chatham House Rules. And 15 Toasts basically was this um, experiment that we kind of made up along with my husband where everybody is asked to give a toast some point in the evening to a theme. And you choose the theme. Um, the first one we ever did was what is a good life? Not as what is the good life, but what what makes for a good life? Um, but you can choose a theme that, that the group would be interested in. It could be rebellion. It could be um, borders. It could be what does it mean to be American? It could be anything. And over the course of the night, people, you know, clink their glass, old school style, stand up and share a story or an experience from their life um, that relates to the theme. And the only other rule is that the last person has to sing their toast. (laughs) And (laughs) what that does is it kind of speeds along the toast. Because basically, most people, at least in the U.S. context, don't want to sing. Um, and so it's this kind of playful way to get people to um, do take a smaller risk, which is, which is giving their toast. Um, and what happens over the course of the night is you hear stories that are still along a kind of organizing principle that people would never kind of share in, you know, in, in a context like that. But when you hear about somebody, uh, you know, falling in love for the first time or experiencing heartbreak, um, or I remember one story that was shared in a dinner that where the theme was strangers, somebody shared that their mother's life was saved because a stranger happened to be walking past her. Their mother fainted, hit their head on the ground, started bleeding. A stranger happened to walk past them in the same moment, called the police and saved their life. And because of that, the person sitting at the table like existed, you know, was born. Um, there's so much more after this dinner that you could go and talk to, you know, talk to this person about than if she simply told you that she was the VP of sales at, you know, such and such company. Um, and so what 15 Toasts does, and you could use any format, but it allows people to share stories and experiences um, that are kind of, you know, off the perhaps theme of the conference or kind of selling something, um, but basically makes them complicated and human. And most people want to talk to other people who are complicated and human because that's what each of us are. The book is called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. And it's available this week. But Priya, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Jason Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.